Hey everyone, this is Angie Wachowski and you are listening to Bet On You Radio. This is a space where we get to feature what I like to consider as ordinary, extraordinary individuals who are taking risks in their life and pursuing their dream and achieving just incredible things. Today's guest is a magician. He's a mentalist. He's a keynote speaker. He's a leadership consultant. He is so many things, but most importantly, I'm so happy because he's my friend. He actually likes me, or he does a really good job of pretending it. <laughs> ben Whitey, welcome to Bet on You Radio. Oh, thank you so much, Angie. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. And you really like me? I do, I do. Or at least I'm acting good enough that you'll never tell. So. <laughs> well, you're No, here. you're absolutely one of my favorite people, mentors, friends. Oh, well, now you're laying on thick. Of course. Thank you so much for that. So when I feature people, I love to talk about their backgrounds because you do so many cool things. And you just can't wake up one day and decide, hey, I want to be a magician or I want to be able to read people's minds. Like, I'm just fascinated by the skills that you developed and sort of how you came about into this line of work that you're in. Yeah, well, for magic, what was great about it is, I mean, it was just the first time I saw it because I was, like a lot of us, I was born at a very early age. Really? Really. And, and I was wow. an only child, so I had a very active imagination. I always tell people the first time I saw magic it was like finding my imagination outside of myself. And I was just, I was bit by the bug. And so being an only child, you know, I, you have to entertain yourself a lot. So my parents took me to the library where I got all the magic books. And then in one of the books, it taught you how to make a box where you could put things in it, but it would look like they vanished. So I made the box and I put all the books in that box and then told my mom I couldn't find the books. <laughs> so we looked every for them. They were in the box and then she went to the library and paid for them all. And that's how I started my, my magic library. So there's this element of <laughs> deceit then is of what course, you're yeah. talking about with the magic. But then, so you get these books and you get all the inspiration and you're learning tricks. So I have, I'm thinking about my life too. Like sometimes when I get interested in something and it gets really hard, mm -hmm. I stop and put it away. But I imagine you had to dig in because things get hard. You've got to learn. And when it gets uncomfortable, you've got to keep learning. Exactly. And one of the things I say in my keynote is like, you know, a lot of people, and this is kind of a magician's mindset thing that I just love. You know, a lot of people, when they're trying to achieve something or working to solve a problem, they work on it right until they get to the point that they think, oh, this, this is impossible. And then they stop. But magicians, they try to think of the most impossible thing they can, something that everyone else says can't be done, something that is almost unimaginable. And once they have that in their mind, that's when they start to work. And it's really cool what can happen when you take that mindset and start applying it to other areas of your life, whether that's in business, whether that's in relationships, whether that's in, you know, really anything. I love that. And that really is the bet on you message. Like your thoughts, your dreams, your ideas mm -hmm. can be possible in the sense that that might seem impossible for where you're at, but maybe you're approaching them wrong. Right, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I could be a magician still. I still of course, got time. Of course. Can you remember like the first like trick that you pulled off that just blew your own mind? Yes, I can. The uh, it was called nickels to dimes, and it's you get you have four nickels and you stack them up, and you have this little brass cap, and you cover the nickels, and then when you lift it up, there's four dimes, and there's nothing in the cap, and I knew the secret of how it worked. I mean, it's it's just a standard magic trick you buy, but the first time I did it in my own hand. It still kind of fooled me. And I was like, ah, this is just awesome. It was just like a pop of dopamine. It was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bet it's like that type of encouragement 
that makes you go more. Like it makes you like, okay, what else can I do? What right. else can I do? Absolutely. Yeah. And so you were a magician. What got you into the mentalist part? Because I'm fascinated. I know like people hear that. They're like, oh, that sounds really spooky. Oh, the mind reading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, like I always say that magic, it's like classical music. You know, if you play the note, the right notes in the right order, the right way, you get the desired effect. Whereas mind reading, it's like improvisational jazz. I know what I know. I know what information you're giving me. I know the context in which we're sitting. And if I play all of those notes right, I can get the desired effect. And I might not know what that is as we begin, but it's just kind of like, just it's an exercise in being very present and in the moment. And for me, I love that. I, I don't like to feel like I'm phoning things in. So if I can be present with someone and then we can create a profound experience together, that is just, that's money. That's great. <laughs> did someone teach you this or how did you get exposed to the I, mind reading the dark mind, arts? I, the dark <laughs> arts, the, uh, well, the, the entertainment. I was very, very lucky that there was, there was two mind readers based in Las Vegas uh, by the name of Bob Kohler and John Stetson. And they kind of took me under their wing for like a long weekend and just taught me a lot of stuff. And there was like, they did this with a few people and there was actually like an interview process and I wrote an essay and like to hopefully get accepted, but they did. And then I went down there for a couple of weekends actually because we became friends and they just kind of shared with me what they did and their experience and kind of helped me explore my own personality. So, because you'd never want to just copy someone, you want to be original to yourself uh, because an audience can always pick up on imitation. Um, but yeah, yeah, so that's how I got into the mind reading. And then from there on, it was just once I experienced how that felt to interact with an audience and do the mind reading, it was just, there was no turning back after that. <laughs> so the interesting thing, too, is that you, again, you learn magic, you dabble, you get interested in mind reading, you dabble. And it's hard to think about that for many people as a profession versus a hobby. You went to college. I did, yeah. I have a degree in theater. And I actually got into a professional acting school uh, right out of undergrad in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And what was great was, well, I was in class uh, at the school at Steppenwolf from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., like six days a week. So I couldn't get a traditional, like, part-time job. But my very first mentor in magic was a man named Jim Cellini, and he was a street performer. Not in the David Blaine, like, pick a card kind of thing, but in the, I'm going to build a crowd, do a show, and ask for tips. And that's how he... You make it sound so classy. <laughs> oh, thanks. It, it wasn't. Because you, you try to stand out, and like one of the costumes I had, I, I thought I was looking like a, like a wispful gypsy, but I looked more like a pirate with a clown fetish. It was, it was pretty bad. But, you know, you do the show, you ask for tips, and that's for probably two or three years in Chicago. That's where the majority of my income came from. While I was kind of in acting school until I picked up an agent and started succeeding with that. Oh, that is fascinating. And again, how did your parents feel sending you to a great university? You went to Wake Forest. Oh like, it's gosh. fancy. You had Maya Angelou as a professor. Like, I did, that I is did. Some I serious pedigree. Dumb, but. dumb luck that I had her as a professor, but she was a rock star. But my parents, funny you should ask that question. I was about to graduate early with a degree in psychology. And I was uh, with my best friend, a guy named Matthew Gutchick, or one of my best friends. And he was watching me kind of explore the street performing stuff as I was learning from Jim. And he knew I loved theater. And one day we were walking, and he was just like, Ben, what would happen 
if we combine great theater with great magic. Because when you go to Broadway and you see Peter Pan, he flies around the stage, but you can see the wires. But the methods and technology exist within the world of magics that he can fly around and you don't see the wires. He can actually fly under things and over things and above the audience and back. And it was just the idea that magic was not the point, but it was a narrative tool that we used to tell a great story. And within two days of that conversation, I switched majors without telling my parents. Mm. And <laughs> I was about to graduate early with a degree in psychology, but now I was so far behind in theater that I couldn't even minor in psychology. And my parents initially were, I don't want to say pissed, but they were... Very surprised. It was a very, <laughs> yeah, they're like, wait, so why don't you just have like theater as a backup? And I'm like, well, that's not how you do it. You try to get it done. And then like, well, all right, so if you're not an actor, what are you going to be? And I was like, oh, magician. And they're just like, oh, disappointed is the wrong word, but they were very, I think they were just afraid for me because... Oh, that's a better word, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because my dad, he was an insurance adjuster. He worked hard all his life. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so they'd never really been exposed to anyone who made a living on a screen or a stage. And But that being said, after they saw my first show, they were on board because they're like, oh, he's taking this seriously. <laughs> he's not just, you know, seeking, you know, instant gratification or fame in the moment or whatever it is people look for. But yeah, yeah, so I did that. And I should also point out, because we've used the word mind reading now a few times. Uh, disclaimer, I'm not actually psychic. <laughs> Everything I do on... <laughs> I don't want people to think like it's kind of any kind of woo-woo thing. But all I do when I'm on stage is I obtain and deliver information from the audience. And when you think about it, it's the exact same process as communication, obtaining and delivering information. The question is, is why does sometimes it feels like mind reading where you create a profound connection and trust and likability mm -hmm. and influence people. And other times that process feels about as productive as trying to baptize a cat. It's just so frustrating at times. And the reason is, is mind readers have a certain set of principles they stick to while they're obtaining and delivering information. And that's what Bob taught me. That's what John taught me when I was in Vegas for that weekend. And that's what I teach in my keynote. And we just talk about how we take those principles and apply mm -hmm. them to everyday conversations with clients, customers, colleagues, et cetera, to get the exact same results of profound connection, trust, influence, likability, et cetera. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there. I'm not psychic. Please do not send me tarot cards. Do not. <laughs> Ask you <laughs> yeah. about secret messages exactly, from exactly. deceased relatives. <laughs> well, because of the name of this podcast is Bet On You Radio, you've had to take many risks to yes. get to this position today. How do you feel about that? Like, how do you deal with fear? How do you deal with rejection? Because I am going to go on a limb. I bet when you were street performing, you got rejected. You got heckled. There were days when you made no money. There are probably days when you've had pretty low self-esteem. Like, how do you deal <laughs> with that? Sounds like my acting career too, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, yes, yes. Well, you have to realize, yeah, with street performing especially, because what was so great about street performing for me, well, there's a lot of things, but that was my main source of income. So if I didn't make money, I didn't eat, I couldn't pay my bills. So there was a lot of pressure on it. So you very quickly kind of get over your ego and you realize, that, hey, I have to get good at this. And I have to realize that it's not about the magic. It's about how well I can connect with these people on the sidewalk who were not expecting to see a show. But then you realize from time to time that like, oh, just because they're not stopping, that doesn't mean 
they don't like me. It doesn't mean that they don't like magic. It doesn't mean that they don't think I have value to offer. They just have their own story. They might be, you know, running to the hospital. They might be late for an appointment. And so I had to learn to not take that personally. And when you do it so many times and getting your, you know, getting your 10,000 hours in, as they say, um, you figure out how to do that and you realize, hey, you know, it's not about planning. It's not about, um, you know, hoping people make certain choices. It's about focusing on the things that I can control and trusting those habits over time. The, uh, my, it's actually a really great thing, like trusting those habits over time because mm -hmm. you first start, maybe your self-trust isn't the most, or at least at the place where you'd like to be, but the repetition, the behaviors that you're building, finding out what's working and just getting out there, like you have to do the work in order work. to get the information oh. that's going to make you successful. And this is worth the price of admission. My father-in-law, uh, Papa Joe, as I call him, is uh, an insurance salesman, and he's in his like late seventies, early eighties, mm -hmm. and he has been in the top three percent of closers uh, for the statewide association now for like twenty plus years. And it'd be one thing if it was like some years he did it, some years he didn't, on and off, mm -hmm. but consistently. And I asked him, I said, Papa Joe, how in the world have you done this so consistently for so long? And he said, Ben, the reason most people fail at their job is because they don't know how to define it. And you have to define it in terms of things that you can control. My job is not to sell insurance because I can't control whether or not someone buys from me. My job is to reach out to five people a day who could buy insurance from me. And I say reach out, I don't mean like a LinkedIn blast or a postcard, I mean a phone call, a handwritten letter, a cup of coffee, a genuine connection. And he had a brilliant way to gamify this because he takes five marbles every day and he puts them in his right pocket. And every time he makes one of those connections, a marble goes from his right pocket to his left pocket. And if at 11 a.m. all five marbles are in his left pocket, he has no qualms about calling it a day because he know he, he did his job that day. Of course, the other side of the coin is if it's 6 p.m. and there's two marbles left in your right pocket, there's yeah. no, no lying to yourself. You didn't do your job that day. And he started doing that, creating that habit. And then he started keeping track of the number of days he actually got all five over and he was like, his business quadrupled when he started keeping track of that metric. Oh, that is amazing. And so let's fast forward to what it is that you're doing today. So you went from the street, you probably went to a theater, you started generating a bigger crowds. That lasts for a while. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Yeah, one of my, Jim, my street mentor, street performing mentor, you know, the last kind of piece of advice he gave me before he passed away was, Ben, get as good as you can on the sidewalk and then get as far away from it as you can. Get into the corporate market because it's something he never really did and he wished he'd put more thought and effort into mm -hmm. it. What I felt was kind of ironic was the skills I learned on the sidewalk are the skills that got me off of it. You know, there's three things you have to do when you street perform. You have to make people stop because people are not, aren't expecting to see a show. So you have to be able to get their attention in a way that doesn't feel pushy or salesy or any, you know, they have to trust you while you're doing it. You have to make people stay, which is another way of saying we have to develop that relationship so we can build some trust. And then we have to make them pay. And pay doesn't necessarily mean I need you to give me money. It means we have to get our relationship to a point where we're exchanging resources, where we realize the other person has value and we exchange it. Um, in that process, because we all have people whose attention we want to get, whether that we're starting a new business, whether we're at a networking event, whether we're in sales, and then within any business, 
developing relationships is just a crucial part of it. And of course, value, because we don't want to, you know, we put so much time and effort into developing our ideas and our business and our services, but we want to make sure we're not leaving anything on the table. So when we can effectively communicate our value to other people, we're going to get compensated well for that. So I went from sidewalks to house parties to country clubs to corporate events while my acting career went up. And I got to a point where I was just like, I was having a blast. I mean, I was working at conferences and on cruise ships, but I felt like something was missing. And I realized what I really enjoyed, in addition to having fun, was helping people. And a very, very good friend uh, named Allison Beers introduced me to another really good friend, you. <laughs> I was going to say, tell me it was me, dang it. It was you. It was you. And then I remember we had coffee at Higher Grounds, and we just kind of talked for a while about our philosophies on business and how we interact with people. And one thing led to another, and we start working together. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back, Ben. So we'll take a quick break, and we're here with Ben Whiting. We'll pick up in a few minutes. Hey everyone, this is Angie Wachowski. I'm one of the co-authors of Bet On You. This is the companion to the radio program. So if you're enjoying what you're listening to, check out this book. Inside there's some really great guidance and a code that takes you to an online platform that helps you dream better and imagine ways that you can bet on yourself. Check it out. So we are here with Ben Whiting, magician, mentalist, keynoter, culture expert, all these things. So how did you go from entertainment, corporate entertainment, theater, to the work that you do today? So talk a little bit about the work that you're doing today. Right. So, well, I was working with you for a while. Yes. We were doing leadership development training all over the globe, uh, creating and delivering content. And one thing I noticed, not with anyone in our company, but other people who were delivering content, I realized... They had great ideas, but sometimes the audience was asleep. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they weren't available to it was, receive yeah, the message. <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard of the phrase death by PowerPoint, but wow, do you learn about it when you watch a lot of corporate trainings? And it was sad because I realized that people don't connect with the best ideas. They connect with the ideas that are communicated the best. And luckily, you encouraged me to incorporate magic and entertainment and theater into what I was doing with, my, with our trainings, and I did, and I found a lot of joy there. And one thing led to another, and now I'm a keynote speaker, and that's my whole thing. I want to deliver content that makes, lives, makes your life easier, that helps your culture bring the best out of its people, but I also want to do it while we have a lot of fun so people remember what they had and uh, remember what they learned and hopefully... Uh, can implement it a little bit easier. And you do workshops to implement. I'm just so impressed just by the trajectory of your career and everything that you've picked up along the way. So we're going to transition now and get to my five favorite questions and looking forward to hearing actually the answer to this first one. Can you share a book that inspired you? Not bet on you, like don't embarrass me <laughs> talking about my books that I've written, but another one. Oh my goodness, there's so many. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, Jim Dethmer's The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Just one. you got to pick just, up one. Oh, just, just one, because we're going to do a thing with it. And yeah, just oh, one. We're going to do a thing with it. Uh, let's go today. Keeping in mind it could be different tomorrow, we'll go with uh, Jim Dethmer's The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Okay. 
Wonderful. Can you share? Oh, what was? Well, why do you like it? Why do I like it? Because it gets you thinking. I think when you read this book, it increases your Mm self-awareness. It helps you realize that you're in control of your reactions. That you know when people have, and this is very similar to Viktor Frankl's uh, *Man's Search for Meaning*. When people have been stripped of their material possessions and all their choices, the one choice we always have is our attitude and how we see the world uh, with our mindset. And Jim does a beautiful job of illustrating this by talking about how we be how we stay above the line versus below the line above the line being a life fueled by curiosity and a desire to learn below the line being a life where we want people to see us as right and we want to place blame on other people when people things go wrong i love that phrase and like that visual too above the line or below the line can you share a piece of feedback that you received that was helpful? It doesn't have to be positive or constructive. Oh, I or be, But just like information. Can you share information the that was helpful The best feedback for you? rarely is positive, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I had, well, here's, this, this is a, a, a two-pronged answer. I was acting on stage. One of my favorite directors in the world, her name is Kit McKay, uh, looked at me and said, Ben, I'm kind of tired of watching you try to be interesting. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. Well, perhaps what should I do? And she was like, I would rather watch you be interested in something. And yeah, and it was, so don't try to be interesting, be interested in something. And I realized this lesson translated to so many other things. When I talk about likability in my workshops, don't focus on being likable, focus on how to like people and making sure they know that because we all like people who like us. You know, don't be interesting, be interested. Same thing with networking. You don't want to go straight up to someone and be like, here's my business card, hire me. You want to say, oh man, did you try the food? It's really great. Getting that interest somewhere other than us just kind of opens the gate so we can connect a little bit easier. I love that. Now, this is going to be a two-part question. Because we are living here now in northern Michigan, so I'd love to ask, what is one of your favorite activities in the community, and what's one of your favorite restaurants in the community? Oh my gosh, in Traverse City. Favorite activity, without a doubt, going to the Pittsbitters minor league baseball games with my friends. Really? We have a little table, uh, we just watch the game, we connect, we you know catch up, we make each other laugh, and it is absolutely just a blast. We even won a raffle this last year. I don't know what this says about the community, but they had a pontoon boat on the baseball field, and we got to watch the game inside the boat. And I was informed that if a ball hit us, it was a double. (laughs) So So that is without a doubt one of my favorite things to do in town. Just, you know, it's, you know, the number one driver of productivity, engagement, happiness at work is having quality relationships with the people you work with. Mm -hmm. But it's not just work, it's life. You know, they say that quality relationships increases your health, increases your, you know, your personal longevity. And just having a solid community of friends that I can hang out with is one of my favorite things to just engage with. That's awesome. And if I had to pick a favorite restaurant, it's actually not a restaurant. It's a location. There's a place in town called Little Fleet, which is this bar where there's a number of food trucks that are constantly changing with all these different cuisines. And, of course, you have the drinks. And it's just a great place for community to just hang out. You always see someone you know there. And I can take my dog, which I love. So I would say Little Fleet. Final question. Can you share a piece of wisdom that you'd like to impart to our audience? Something that you picked up that you think would be beneficial to people who are either betting on themselves or trying to find a happier life, living above the line, all those things. Yeah, and I'll tell you, if 
like, you know, remember that courage is not a lack of fear. It's just action combined with fear. And that's a big thing when, you, when you're trying to bet on yourself. But there's a story I'll tell you. One of the, going back to my Angelou, the, uh, it was 2004 when I had the dumb, dumb luck to spend some time with her. And it was a group of us sitting around a table. And we were all jibber-jabbering while she was just kind of staring at us. Uh, and we were discussing what we thought the most important virtue was. And you know, someone was saying patience, someone was saying intelligence, blah, 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 blah. And finally, this group of idiots, someone was like, hey, how about we ask the National Treasure Poet Laureate who's sitting here staring at us? And I said, Dr. Angela, what do you think the most important, most valuable virtue is? And she looked at me and she went, oh, honey, I don't think I know. The most important virtue is courage. For without courage, no other virtue can be practiced with consistency. Any other questions? Oh, <laughs> mic drop. We were all just like, it was incredible. Mic drop moments. And yeah, it was like, okay, well, that closes the book on that discussion. Courage, <laughs> most important virtue. I consistency. Love that. Oh. So I would say if you're betting on yourself, remember you're supposed to be afraid. So, but that's not what makes it courageous. What makes it courageous is just taking action. And action always trumps, in my experience, planning. Sometimes people over plan, I think, as a means to not take a risk uh, because it feels like you're being productive mm -hmm. when the reality is you're just making yourself busy, which is not productive. <laughs> I love that. Well, Ben Whiting, thank you so much for joining us. Angie, with Bet thank on you radio. You, this was and an thank absolute... you for the inspiration and guidance. And thank you to listeners for being here today, listening to this great episode from Ben Whiting. And Angie. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thank you.